0: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, we'll hear from the new administration, President Biden's National Economic Council director, Brian Deese.
1: We are at a moment where we need decisive action. We need to move quickly and we need to move comprehensively. We've learned over the last 10 months what happens if you address this crisis piecemeal.
0: And unpacking Washington's plans for Silicon Valley, Axios reporter Sarah Fisher on the agenda, the priorities and the problems ahead.
2: If conservatives are so highly focused on censorship and Democrats are so highly focused on content moderation, it's gonna be hard for them to meet somewhere in the middle.
0: Plus a new $20 bill is on the horizon, Wall Street's ties to infamy, and Musk's Twitter is at it again, sending one company's stock price up all because of a hat.
3: That stock's up 9.7%. And it appears to be because of a tweet from Elon Musk.
0: It's Tuesday, January 26th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. We start the podcast today with Buy American. President Biden moving to put the power of the federal government behind efforts to buy more U.S.-made products. The president signed an executive order yesterday that will direct government agencies to strengthen requirements for purchasing goods and services from U.S. workers and U.S. companies. This is all part of the new administration's aggressive early agenda for the economy. Beyond this flurry of early executive action, Biden told reporters he is optimistic for a bipartisan agreement on massive COVID relief, which he wants to the tune of $1.9 trillion.
4: And I don't expect we'll know whether we have an agreement and to what extent the you know, entire package will be able to pass or not pass until we get right down to the very end of this process, which will be probably in a couple weeks. But the point is, this is just a process beginning.
0: On those negotiations and the Buy American Order, the White House's director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese, spoke to Squawk Box anchors Andrew Ross Sorkin and Becky Quick today. He joined from the White House North Lawn. You may be able to hear the gardening equipment in the background. Here's Andrew.
4: Good morning to you, Brian. Thank you so very, very much for joining us uh, as we try to uh, unpack and understand uh, what's happening here. Uh, Let's start, if we could, just with the state of the American Rescue Plan, if we could, uh, and these stimulus measures. I ask in part because it appears that there's a bipartisan group of senators that are troubled by the amount of money going out, the the idea of $1,400 reaching some people at a certain income. Uh, 16 of them joined a phone call with you on Sunday. What happened on that call?
1: Well, look, happy to be here. Good to see you. Uh, you know, I, uh, it was a good call. It was a constructive conversation, and this is part of the process. Uh, the president put forward a plan. Uh, we're now engaging with members of Congress uh, from both parties to uh, consult with them to make the case on the provisions included, and this is, all, uh, this is all part of the process. I think if you look at the American Rescue Plan in total, What you see is a an effort that is actually what we need to get shots in people's arms, get schools open, get relief to families and businesses and in a way that is targeted to those who uh, need it most. But we're looking for people's input. We're having the conversation and we're going to move this forward.
4: Is there a way to do uh, a more more targeted effort in terms of getting that fourteen hundred dollars just to the people uh, who need it most?
1: Well, look, I'd make two points. The first is, if you look at the provisions of the American Rescue Plan, very targeted. Hunger, homelessness, unemployment insurance. Uh, Certainly, we we welcome the focus on uh, targeting, including from uh, Republican members and those provisions. Um, should have uh, broad bipartisan support when it comes to the checks uh, we uh, put forward a proposal that uh, to your point about bipartisanship passed the house with 275 votes 44 republicans voted for it Um, certainly if there are ways to make that provision and other uh, provisions more effective that's something that we're open to that we'll have conversations about but i think if you look in the aggregate this is an uh, approach that is very much targeted at those workers and those businesses that
4: are struggling the most in this economy How concerned are you that some of the stimulus money, at least in the past and perhaps in the future, will end up, frankly, in the stock market? There are anecdotal reports over and over again. uh, In fact, arguments about why the stock market has moved the way it has, because stimulus money uh, has been thrown into the markets.
1: I, I would I would I would step back here and look at what's actually in the rescue plan. The first big piece of this is to underwrite a national vaccine Uh, and vaccination and covid effort about getting shots into people's arms getting testing ramped up and getting schools back open that's money that's going to support concrete efforts that we know we need and they're long overdue and are key to our economic recovery Uh, supports to states and local governments so they uh, can avoid laying off uh, uh, teachers firefighters cops those are resources that will go into the economy and support and stabilize as we're able to get this virus under control other elements like unemployment insurance, we see uh, those who are unemployed are looking to deploy those resources to keep their themselves afloat and their families afloat. Uh, and, and with respect to the checks, again, if you look at this, you know, two-thirds of the benefit of the checks that have gone out have gone to families with less than $90,000 in income. Those are resources that families are looking, again, to bridge savings if they've lost a job, if they haven't lost a job and they have extra uh, expenses. So you know, we we, we think that this is a sensible approach and calibrated to the moment that we are in right now where the risk of not acting, the risk of inaction at this precarious moment in the economy really outweighs the risk of sitting back and waiting and seeing as the virus uh, accelerates and as the economy moves downward.
3: Hey, Brian, what is the the most important focus for this administration? Is it going to be to get a big bill with all the things you just laid out or is it going to be to get a bipartisan bill?
1: Look, you heard from the president yesterday we are at a moment where we need decisive action. We need to move quickly, uh and we need to move comprehensively. We've learned over the last 10 months what happens if you ad- address this crisis piecemeal. We need to move comprehensively and we need to move quickly. So that's really our our focus. Uh we certainly want to move so comp- uh, with as much support so big, as we can.
3: It sounds like big if you have to choose between the two, you're going to go with big and that means budget reconciliation.
1: Well, look, we need to do what it's going to take to uh, uh, to solve this crisis. We can't get schools open if we don't get control of the virus. We can't get control of the virus unless we invest uh, in the resources we need. We can't get people back to work if we don't get the schools open. So, you know, we we need to tackle this comprehensively uh we're very open to uh people's input and ideas that's the process that's happening right now but we do need to move with speed here so we don't find ourselves a month or two or three from now in a place where the virus isn't uh, isn't getting under control the economy is in a worse place and we're all asking ourselves why we didn't act
4: uh, brian perhaps a philosophical question that'll turn practical later this year how 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 are you thinking about uh, taxes raising taxes both on the corporate side uh and on the individual side and perhaps uh, even considering the salt deduction later this year, as well,
1: look, I think uh, the, the president was pretty clear about his approach to uh, uh, to taxes in the campaign, and it continues to be uh, uh, his approach today, which is if you look at the both on the corporate and the individual side there 's important reforms that we could do that would help make sure that, uh, that more uh, the higher income Americans as well as corporations are paying. Uh, a, a higher rate um, and a larger amount in taxes, but done so in a way that could actually increase our own domestic competitiveness. And, Andrew, you, know, you mentioned the executive order that the president signed yesterday about uh, buy America and make it into Mer- in America. We are very focused on how we can increase the domestic competitiveness, industrial strength of this country. One of those ways is to reform the corporate tax code to actually encourage greater domestic investment. We believe we can do that while raising uh, revenue in the aggregate. And that's the core of the president's plan.
4: Hey, Brian, I know we've got to let you go, but one question. One of the critiques of of, of the Buy America plan uh, is that it may increase the cost for certain products products, and perhaps certain technologies won't be available To us what do you say to that look
1: we've seen in this crisis the cost to our economy of having vulnerable supply chains uh, and having an economy that is overly reliant on countries that don't share our interest when it comes to critical materials whether that's PPE or whether that's semiconductors investing in our own industrial competitiveness in the the resilience of our supply chains will pay dividends economically and this approach to buy America is, is a key component to that But it's one piece of a larger approach that we're going to uh, put forward about how to increase our own resilience and our own industrial competitiveness. That is absolutely going to pay dividends for our economy going forward.
4: Brian Deese, we appreciate uh, you joining us this morning and we hope to continue this conversation with you. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Next on Squawk Pod, the My Pillow drama, and big hurdles for Washington's big tech agenda with Axios reporter Sarah Fisher.
2: Every time Twitter, Facebook, or any of these platforms take action on somebody who is a far-right conservative or a Trump ally, conservatives come out and they decry
0: censorship. And later, the rest of the stories that got us talking and a stock that got Elon tweeting. They bought a
3: hand-knit, wool, Marvin the Martian helm for his
0: dog. You know the cartoon. Three guesses where he'd find that particular craftsmanship. We're back after this.
4: Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors.
0: Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson,
4: we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson. We are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. You're listening to
0: Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick.
3: Welcome back, everybody. The Biden administration very likely to look at more regulation for big tech in the future, but the question is when. Joining us right now on that is Sarah Fisher. She's media reporter at Axios. And Sarah, we know the Biden administration has a lot on its plate right now. Uh, Obviously, big tech in the focus, but I just wonder how far down the line that's going to be. What do you think?
2: Well, regulatory analysts don't see something passing, whether it's a Section 230 amendment Or national privacy law in the first two years of this administration and the reason being is there's still so much gridlock and there's still so much tension following everything that happened with the trump administration there's also some things that are a little bit more pressing it's hard to believe that things would be more pressing but it's true including for the Biden administration turning around some of the trump era moves that they think are really important we've seen a bunch of executive orders for example in the past week But what I would expect, Becky, is for Congress to tackle two big issues. As I mentioned, national privacy law is something I know is going to be talked about this cycle, as well as a Section 230 reform, although I think that's less likely to get put into concrete action.
3: Yeah, especially when you look at the troubles they're having just trying to figure out How much of a relief bill they're willing to pass right now, you know, things you can do on a bipartisan nature um, and things you can't do on a bipartisan nature are going to start piling up pretty quickly. Uh, Sarah, this morning we were just talking about how Twitter has removed the my pillow guy. Uh, forever from its platform at this point. We know about President Trump and, and the removal there. They are moving further and further down this road of, of admitting that they're, they're not just a bulletin board. They are a publishing company at this point. There's, there's also a, a new acquisition they came up with today, um, a company called Review. What does all of this tell you?
2: Well, it means that Twitter is leaning into its responsibility for the content that's on its platform. And what that means from a regulatory perspective is that it's going to put itself under the fire of conservatives on Capitol Hill. Every time Twitter, Facebook or any of these platforms take action on somebody who is a far right conservative or a Trump ally, conservatives come out and they decry censorship. That's going to make it a lot harder for, one, tech companies to get along with this new Congress, but two, quite honestly, for some new bill to pass. If conservatives are so highly focused on censorship and Democrats are so highly focused on content moderation, it's going to be hard for them to meet somewhere in the middle. And honestly, Becky, the real loser here is the American people and people around the world. We know that there's a lot of misinformation on these platforms. The tech companies themselves want to do something about it. Everyone wants it to get tackled. But this question of censorship is going to plague reform for a long time.
3: Wait a minute. You almost sound like there's a method to the madness here. You think these tech companies are intentionally pushing the conversation more so that divides the Congress? Or you just think they're, they're doing what they think is right and as a result, it's going to leave a more divided Congress?
2: The latter. Exactly. They're doing what they think is right in order to make sure that they're safe. Platforms, But the problem is conservatives don't see it that way. They see it as them being censored. And anytime conservatives on Capitol Hill think they're being censored, they're going to come at the Section 230 law as something around censorship as opposed to thoughtful content moderation. And that's going to make it really hard for a bill to get passed.
3: The truth is, though, these companies are acting more and more like publishers. Is there a point that they are going to be more legally liable for anything that winds up on their platform? If they're saying they're taking down some things that they consider misinformation but not others, how does that open their liability?
2: Well, I think the first thing you're going to see, Becky, is that there's conversations right now with the Biden administration about whether or not white supremacy and domestic extremism is going to be something we consider illegal right now it's really hard for big tech companies to take action on that kind of speech without being deemed as censors but if that type of speech is deemed illegal then they can take action on it and it's really hard to say that they're censoring people's viewpoints because instead they're just really filtering things that are illegal off their platform the same way that they tackle isis content or foreign terrorism i think the big question though is how are they going to lean into accountability You've seen Facebook, Twitter, Google, they're setting up ad libraries. They're starting to give more researchers access to their data. I think that's going to help ease Congress's concerns around Section 230 reform if they get more access to data and transparency. But of course, Becky, there's the question around privacy. If they give up too much data, people might say, hey, is my data safe with these platforms if they're sharing it with everybody?
3: Yeah, definitely some shifting landscape here. Sarah, thanks for walking us through some of that. Good to see you.
2: Good to see you. Thank you.
5: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
0: Now for the rest of today's stories that got us talking or squawking with Andrew, Becky, and CNBC's Mike Santoli.
4: Now to the story that a lot of folks on Wall Street are talking about uh, all last night and into this morning. Apollo Global Management CEO Leon Black paid sex predator Jeffrey Epstein $158 million for financial advice. But an outside law firm says that Black wasn't involved with Epstein's criminal activities. Leslie Picker joins us with the latest. Leslie.
6: Hey, Andrew, as a result, Leon Black is resigning as CEO of Apollo. The new news, of course, coincides with the findings of an outside review into his personal dealings with disgraced financier, Jeffrey Epstein. Now, the report was put together by a law firm at Deckert, uh, uh, the law firm Deckert at Black's request. It reaffirmed that he wasn't involved in any of Epstein's criminal activities, as the firm had stated previously. But it showed that Black paid Epstein a whopping $158 million for services between 2012 and 2017. Services that the report said included trust and estate planning, tax issues, advice about art, his private plane, yacht, philanthropy, and the operation of Black's family office. Now, Black intends to step down as Apollo's CEO on his 70th birthday in July, but will remain chairman of the board. Mark Rowan, who co-founded the firm, will take the reins as CEO at that time. Now, Black is considered one of the founding fathers of private equity. He started Apollo three decades ago. Grew it into a more than a $400 billion alternative assets behemoth. But the Epstein scandal weighed on his reputation and ultimately on the firm, with some investors pausing additional commitments to the fund. Now, shares of Apollo gained amid the Monday evening news that he was stepping down as CEO. Guys.
4: Leslie, there's there's so many elements that I have questions about. Of course, for for many years, people... Try to imagine where did Jeffrey Epstein's money come from, especially in these latter years. And it's now clear that that money came uh, mostly, it appears, from Leon Black directly. Uh, the big question I'd ask you is actually how you think this is going to change uh, Apollo. Um, is this just a, a shuffling of the seats, if you will? Leon Black is going to remain the chairman of the company. He's going to remain uh, one of its largest shareholders, tied to it uh, as, as much as anybody. Um, And it sounds from some of the reporting that there was a battle inside the company over how quickly he was even going to depart from that CEO seat, Josh Harris, pushing for him to do it immediately. Uh, And uh, yet this is now going to happen apparently about six months from now.
6: Right. So the Times had some great reporting on this yesterday about how there was this internal battle. They believed that he wasn't stepping down soon enough. That July was taking too long. Uh, that it's about you know six months away before we'll really see any kind of change. Uh, but based on his statements and the company's statements, July is what is is the timeline that will happen. Um, as for what will change with Apollo, uh, the company has three co-founders: Mark Rowan, Josh Harris, as you mentioned, as well as Leon Black. Leon Black has been CEO for the duration of the firm. His his face is is associated with the firm, but really behind the scenes. Josh Harris does a lot of work and Mark Rowan uh, is really credited with building out their Athene business and building out Apollo beyond its kind of private equity core. It's now, of course, in credit insurance, a bunch of other businesses that has been very lucrative for the firm. Leslie,
4: Leslie, we got to run the most critical thing that I saw in that note, though, is that is he's pushing to change the governance structure from a control structure effectively Mm -hmm. to a one share, one vote structure. Is that why the stock is moving?
6: That is part of it, too. Um, Also, that would imply that they could be included in the S&P 500, which would be a
3: benefit for them as well.
4: Okay, Leslie Picker, always good to see you. Thanks for helping us out this morning.
3: The makeover for the 20 dollar bill is back on. President Biden is moving forward with the five-year-old plan to place abolitionist Harriet Tubman on that bill, replacing the former president, Andrew Jackson. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki confirmed that the administration is moving forward with that change, saying that the country's money should reflect the history and diversity of our country. Andrew?
4: Thanks, Becky. Um, I still don't understand. You know, I remember when they first announced it, they said it was like a, a multi-year if not decade-long project, then you remember Stephen Mnuchin uh, said that it was another ten years out. I don't know why. Why, would it, why does it take so long? I mean, I, I understand it could take a year or two to to replate the the bills and what what's required with that. But it, I don't I don't I don't get the um, the lengthy period. But I mean, they always about how engineers so the, yeah. the next day. Yeah, I don't know what you say? Yeah,
1: right. I'm saying they always boast about how highly engineered these the, the, the currency is in terms of anti-fraud right. and, and all the rest. But I don't know why the, yeah. the image should matter that
4: much.
3: Check out shares of Etsy. It is the biggest S&P, S&P pre-market winner. And we're going to tell you why. That stock's up nine point seven percent. And it appears to be because of a tweet from Elon Musk. Talk about the Musk effect on this. Musk wrote, I kind of love Etsy saying that he bought a hand knit wool Marvin the Martian helm for his dog. I'm guessing that means the helmet that Martian, the Marvin the Martian, you know, the cartoon, the guy who's got that. And yeah, he's right. You can get just about anything on Etsy. I think what I want now, guys, I'm in the market for Statler and Waldorf, the old guys from um, The Muppet the, Show, the Muppet yeah. Show. There are new memes of them out there that have been knitted of them with the Bernie gloves and the Bernie jacket, which is about (laughs) perfect. So that's what I'm in the market for.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, it's easy to look at this kind of action and kind of be scolding and say, oh, why would you buy on something? Like that. But does it matter if Etsy trades at 95 like times earnings or 105 times earnings, which is basically the difference between yeah. what the pre-market price was and is. So, um, you know, I think it's easy to say. I think, first of all, this is always going on on Wall Street, straight tips, people chasing the stuff that's moving. So we have seen a lot of it right now, for sure.
3: It's just so it, I, I, but Mike, I, I feel I like see. there's so much more of it these days, like there's 15 stocks a day that you can look at and say, oh, my gosh, it's up yeah. X percent because of this. It's up Y percent percent because of that. And that feels a lot more like uh, 1999,
1: maybe Yeah, but in 99, you had dozens right. and dozens. And also, it's victimless, but we'll see.
0: And that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening. On our rundown tomorrow, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan on a unique agreement between dozens of companies to measure sustainability.
1: Take all these companies and all the money they spend on their supply chains and the money they spend on their teammates and the money they spend on advertising and and understanding and think about what they bring to the table. They bring trillions of dollars of investment. If they commit to carbon neutrality, which many of the companies have, and then disclose that, they bring tremendous demand for clean energy and the energy transition. That's what capitalism can drive this.
0: Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow.